1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: After its founding by an aristocrat turned spiritualist turned intellectual, Ignatius of Loyola, in 1540, the Society of Jesus, or the Jesuits, established itself as one of the most important of all religious orders. The Jesuits were important in doctrine politics, missionary work, and uh, famously, education. At times, they've been out of favour in the Vatican, but they have produced a pope, Pope Francis. And Marcus Friedrich, Professor of Early Modern History at the University of Hamburg, has written a long, comprehensive and very readable history of the Jesuits. It was originally published in 2016. It's now out with an English translation. So welcome, Professor. Welcome, Owen. It's a great pleasure being here. And I'd just like you to start with telling us a bit about Ignatius of Loyola, who he was and uh, how it came to be that he got very serious about religion.
1: Well, Ignatius was, as you just mentioned in your intro, um, a Spanish nobleman. He lived a very normal life, the, the life of a normal Spanish nobleman for much of his Early career, so to say. He was educated at court. He spent time at various courts of royal and other nobles in northern Spain in the end of the 15th and early 16th century. At these courts, he really imbibed the knightly aristocratic culture of late medieval Europe. Uh, He was quick with the sword, he was very concerned about his honor. There was a a great dose of machism, we might say today, in his behavior. So there was nothing really unusual about his career for the first uh, almost 30 years of his life. The significant change, or some might even say break, in his biography really came in fifteen. when he was severely wounded, fighting for the Spanish king against an invading French army. And in that fight, which took place in the northern Spanish city of Pamplona, his leg was seriously injured, which resulted in a week or actually months-long period of suffering. Uh, He had to, to stay in bed for quite extended amounts of time. And during that period, he really changed the course of his life. Um, he claims famously to have had a sort of an illumination, uh, which is, of course, a very traditional trope in Christian literature. And from then on, he refocused his life away from that, that courtly, noble, um, knightly culture towards a religious life path, which he then pursued until his death almost. 30 years, 35 years later.
0: Yeah, and he, he founded the Jesuits, as I say, in, in 1540. So when he did that, why did he do it? What was the need for an organisation? What was he trying to achieve?
1: Well, uh, first of all, we should understand that the path between that, that life-changing, life-altering moment in in 21 and the founding of the Jesuits was a very long one Ignatius did not have initially in mind uh, very precisely that he wanted to found an order actually quite to the contrary I think he was first of all trying to find a spiritual path for himself and over almost 20 years he reconfigured his his own vision of what it meant to be a good Christian of what it actually was about that uh, his new life should, should, should look at so he, he experimented a lot in that that two decades, and only at the very end he ended up founding an order. What he wanted to achieve, there is a famous a famous formula that is, is common knowledge to, to all Jesuits and people interested in the Jesuits today. He wanted to help the souls. That's how the Jesuits to this very day define, define their their mission, helping souls. That is what they want. Initially, Ignatius wanted to do that in the Holy Land, and he founded the order, the Jesuits as we know it, only after some circumstances prevented him and his first bands of friends actually going to the Holy Land. As a plan B, we might say they had agreed to submit themselves to the Pope, Paul III in that particular case uh, if they could not go to the Holy Land and actually ask the Pope for, for a mission of where to go, where best to serve the Church in helping the souls, because they assumed that the Pope would have a, a kind of a global overview over Christianity so to say, and he should he should send the the Jesuits or the, the first band of people that were to become the Jesuits to wherever they were most needed. So this is very
0: briefly put the story of how the Jesuits were founded. So w- when he's when he was trying to help souls, was, was that the souls of Catholics or the souls of everybody? So it was evangelical as well?
1: Well, I think it was very quickly expanding beyond anything Ignatius would have had in mind. This very quickly concerned the the Catholics, obviously, but then also the non-Catholic Christians, that is the Protestants, but also various groups of Orthodox and Oriental Christians. And very quickly also, this concerned the non-Christians. So from very early on, the Jesuits expanded beyond Europe. They, They went to the Americas, to Asia, and are, of course, as you mentioned already, rightly famous for the Work with the newly conquered and newly discovered people around the globe, those people that the Jesuits would have called heathens.
0: Right. And it seems to me they had money right from the start because quite quickly they were building buildings, you know, residences, colleges, and becoming quite wealthy. Well, the Jesuits were indeed. Uh, and are indeed
1: quite famous for um, being great fundraisers. So from very early on, as you mentioned, they attracted funding, especially from the wealthy and the rich. They had uh, great networks of patrons. And as we have found out recently, um, also patronesses, actually the, the female patrons played a huge role, especially in the early years or decades. Of the order, so yes, they were very good at fundraising. I suspect this has, at least in part, to do with Ignatius being a nobleman. So he would he would have just known from his from his upbringing and and his life at at court how to you know how to how to address and how to to work with people of high social standing. So yes, they were rich; they attracted a lot of money. But on the other hand, I think we should not overlook that the Jesuits were also almost from the beginning and constantly really facing a lot of situations where they couldn't do what they were called to do because they had not enough money. So the Jesuits turned down a lot of opportunities to found additional colleges on the one hand because there weren't enough people themselves, so they didn't have the manpower to staff all of them. But then also they turned quite quite rigidly
0: initiatives down if they uh, thought they were not well-funded or not well-funded enough. Right. And, uh, you say they were short of manpower, but the the numbers grew pretty quickly, didn't they? Because it started off in 1540 with, was it a group of six?
1: Well, there were 10, 10 at the beginning. Um, and that group of 10 had grown over a long time. So there is a really long history here how Ignatius got to meet these, these um this, this initial band of Jesuits, um, but that's maybe a different story. And yes the, the numbers did grow rapidly by the end of Ignatius life um, 1556 there are about a thousand Jesuits and the real takeoff in manpower occurs towards the end of the 16th century. So yes, this is a, 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 an amazing an amazing story of success if we look at the numbers and still, the Jesuits often found that they did not have enough manpower to staff and man all the, the um, opportunities, all the, the upcoming things they, they were asked to do. So in, in many sources, we actually see the Jesuits deliberating with quite some anguish of what to do, where to go, what they could afford,
0: so to say, to commit themselves to. And as we run through the early history of the Jesuits, we, we we sort of reach the middle history, I guess. And 1773, when the Jesuits who had started trying to support the Pope, saying they'd do whatever the Pope wanted, clashed with the Pope, Pope Clement the Fourteenth. What happened?
1: Well, this is a very long story, um, which I think needs to be broken up into several layers. So I think there is a a, sort of a a long-term history of anti jesuit sentiment, which definitely starts in the 16th century, uh, like almost with the the beginning and the founding of the Jesuits. There were also voices that were critical of the Jesuits for various reasons. So seen in the long durée, the Jesuits have never been uncontested. Seen in a sort of a mid-range perspective, we may say, maybe, I would, I would argue that the, the anti jesuit sentiment, the criticism of the Jesuits, grew ever stronger after the final decades or so of the 17th century, when some of the cultural preferences that the Jesuits had were becoming out of date, so to say. This long term anti Jesuit sentiment really really becomes ever more articulated as the 17th century moves on, as new competitors in Catholic culture emerge, most famously the Chansonists in French, um, who really fought the Jesuits with everything they had. So, a, a newer brand of Catholicism, we may say, became attractive to more and more people. And then there is a short term history to 1773 which starts somewhere in probably in the second third of the 18th century which has a lot to do with political changes both in Europe and overseas with changes in in state power with changes in how church state relations were configured by a new generation of ministers and kings and i would say understanding the, the final demise of the Jesuits in 1773 really has to take into account all of these dimensions, the long-term anti-Jesuit sentiment, which grew during the the preceding 100 years or so, and then a series of, of rather short-term political events in the 1730s, 40s and 50s.
0: But when you look at that in the round, would you say that the differences the Jesuits had with other groups and other people were mainly doctrinal, or was it just organizational personal rivalries ambition what how would you characterize the differences
1: well i would say in the end there were differences or conflicts on pretty much every level that you can imagine it started with rivalry of older monastic orders which didn't really understand why a new and highly successful order was needed at all the anti-jesuit sentiment very quickly focused on some, we would maybe say practical issues, so the Jesuits didn't have the regular prayer throughout the day they didn't wear um, specifically designed clothes. so they were they were unusual in many ways which which some of their opponents find found highly disturbing. Then there was a political dimension. the Jesuits were accused of being either pro or anti-Spanish depending on uh, whose side the, the critics were on. Then there is a doctrinal um, conflict. the Jesuits um, held certain positions or were set to hold certain theological positions, which um, became increasingly unfashionable. Then there was also a kind of a cultural opposition to the Jesuits. Jesuit pedagogy became increasingly out of tune with early Enlightenment pedagogical ideas. So I would would say as as we move towards 1773, anti-Jesuit opinion really Covers almost every aspect of Jesuit
0: life. Yeah, lots of issues. But so put it like this: If there was the head of a monastery, a traditional Catholic monastery in, let's say, 1750, and the Jesuits were, you know, knocking on his door, what would he say about the Jesuits, and what would the, the Jesuits say about him?
1: Anti-Jesuit sentiment really comes very much in to play when we look at printed. Uh, Public discourse, and when we come to to political sources, so internal administrative documents, they were they were very critical of the Jesuits. In practical, everyday terms, I think many Jesuits got quite well along with their rivals, or so-called rivals.
0: No, sure, but they'd say they they just, just again just to pin this down, a typical traditionalist would say of the Jesuits, we uh, you know I, I'm worried about you because because
1: you're too lax in moral terms. You allow people to do what they want and then find ways to excuse them. He would also probably say you're too worldly in many ways, focusing on the the cultural elite. They would also say, increasingly in the 18th century, you're too backward in your cultural preferences.
0: See, that's very interesting because I think today many people have the impression of the Jesuits as very conservative. And yet you're saying, You know, back in, let's say, mid-18th century, people were saying they're too lax. So does that reflect a misunderstanding, a contemporary misunderstanding? How, How do you see it?
1: Well, first of all, I would say contemporary Jesuits are very often actually as I experience it viewed as being entirely liberal if, if you look at the last three decades before Pope Francis, for instance, the Jesuits have been uh, often in the line of fire because they were considered to be too too left leaning too liberal I mean they were strongly associated with liberation theology in the Americas, for instance. so I would say the most recent generation or two of the Jesuits is actually considered to be relative. Liberal, level, relatively forward-looking, relatively in tune with contemporary attitudes. I would say the 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 main period in which the Jesuits appeared as you know sort of anti-modernist bulwarks of tradition that really spans sort of much of the Enlightenment era and then the 19th and early 20th century. I think this is this is the period when the Jesuits were. Considered to be conservative, backward looking, anti modern really. And I I would say this image isn't quite quite untrue. There were phases in in, in, in the movement's
0: development, basically.
1: Absolutely, and I would I would also say I mean this is what what every historian probably says about his or her topic. It's actually fairly impossible to make valid generalizations about a social body that had up to thirty thousand members. So at every time, probably for every Jesuit who con affirms uh, the mainstream image, whatever it is. There are many, many um, exceptions. Uh, actually, this is really one of the things I wanted to show with my book, and I, I tried to say so quite explicitly in one of the earliest sections, that it's very difficult, based on, on contemporary research and the wealth of information that we have now on the Jesuits, that it's actually very different to pin down the Jesuits as being one thing or another Exclusively, I, I would rather highlight the Jesuits are a very colorful, very very heterogeneous uh, corpus of people who are doing very different things at very very different contexts at the very same time. So I think I think it would be best for all of us to move a little bit away from any attempts of pinning down the Jesuits to being you know either conservative or modernist, left leaning, right wing right-leaning. Uh, I think this was a, an extremely colorful band of people and is to this very day. One of the, really, one of the big goals of my book is trying to overcome, finally, hopefully, some of the traditional stereotypes that are still so popular. I mean, if you type in Chesed on the internet, you get all kinds of crazy stories and myths about them and conspiracy theories, which which just seem to imagine that a social body of 30,000 people could, you know, just work and function in lockstep,
0: which definitely was never the case. And, and one aspect of the Jesuits, which I, I was unaware of before reading your book, was their involvement with mysticism. Tell us about that.
1: Oh, Yeah. That is a very interesting and uh, very only recently discovered story, I would say. Traditionally, and for for good reasons, people have thought that the Jesuits were very skeptical of mysticism for various reasons, which partly had to do with the Reformation. So mysticism was associated with the Reformation and the, the post tridentine papacy was generally uh, sort of reluctant to embrace the mystic tradition of Catholicism or Christianity in general. So the Jesuits were often seen as being really critical of mysticism or certainly not being actively involved in that. And I think this is Part of that that black legend that still that still is so popular, you know, seeing the Jesuits as being worldly, uh, matter-of-factly, very well organized. None of these things go well with mysticism. I would say. So recent research has found out that the Jesuits were actually very strongly involved in perpetuating and refashioning that that long tradition of mysticism that that so so strongly shaped Christianity in in the late medieval and early modern period and I think there is much work to be done here but I think it's now becoming clearer and clearer that the Jesuits really were part of of a broader tradition that was quite open to mystical tendencies and incorporated them in very different and and interesting
0: ways into their own spiritual framework. Just to sort of further explain that, could you describe the kind of mystical practice that they might have got involved with?
1: Uh, Well, there were certain forms of, we may say, individual and internal prayers. This was one of the things that was hotly contested towards the end of the 16th century. And initially, some of the Jesuit generals really also cracked down on these form of alternative or supposedly subversive forms of internal prayer because they they thought they were subversive since they didn't involve sort of institutional guidance uh, i think that was that was the key thing but later as the baroque period um, moves on as we move into the 17th century i think the jesuits developed some of the new and, and long-lasting mystical traditions. For instance, famously, most famously, maybe, the devotion to the sacred heart of Jesus, which became politically charged in the 19th century as a, as a conservative form of piety. This is a highly mystical mystical form of Christian spirituality, trying to achieve union with the heart of Jesus, which um, was also depicted in in very physical ways, so the Jesuits created a spirituality that was also very much centered on immersing yourself spiritually in the suffering of Christ. Th- these were trends of the seventeenth and eighteenth century that the Jesuits really, really wholeheartedly adopted and and developed and refined further and promoted very strongly.
0: And moving away from these religious beliefs and attitudes. Is it fair to say the Jesuits tended and have always tended to stay close to power? Is that a feature of the Jesuit movement? I would answer with a with
1: a very qualified yes. I think the Jesuits were very much aware from the beginning and we've talked about that already that resources are always limited so the Jesuits were promoting usage of resources that created the most effect. They assumed that the most effect could be had if you work with the leaders of society, uh, whether they be actually the the princes and governments or the cultural and intellectual leaders. So in that sense, I think the Jesuits were interested in working, cooperating with power. They Placed much hope in what we would maybe call a trickle-down effect. Um, so you know, you you work with the head of society, and then this will eventually alter uh, the rest of of. Um, given society in whatever ways you want. So in that sense, I would say yes. The Jesuits were not keen on getting involved in politics, certainly not the Jesuits as an organization. Individual Jesuits may have been very involved in in politics and may have actually, you know, relished um, being close uh, advisors to kings or princes, but this was not, and and I really want to emphasize this, this was not a general goal of the organization and these individuals often actually faced harsh criticisms within the Jesuits. Sometimes it was hard to get rid of these powerful and and courtly Jesuits because they were just so powerful. So you couldn't really do away with them. But they they have not been developed into a general role model of Jesuit behavior. I would strongly
0: emphasize that. And when you talk about the trickle-down idea, does that explain the Jesuits' emphasis on education because, you know, it was a time when when this started it was a time when not many were educated and they were creating a cadre of people educated in in, in you know, in their beliefs.
1: Yeah, one could call that trickle down or maybe with a slightly more neutral term here, multiplication effect. So I think they they very clearly understood that education was the primary pathway towards um, what they conceived as re-Christianizing Europe and the world.
0: Yeah, but the, the emphasis on education led to another feature of the Jesuits, which people are still aware of today, I think, because yeah, this word Jesuitical sort of means... Well, you tell me, but it's, it's it's very fine reasoning, isn't it? It's the sort of discussion that might happen around the teachers' table at at some Jesuit education centre. The,
1: the way the way you put it now, Jesuitical sounds like a neutral term. The way I think, Jesuitical is. At least, at least equally often used is in a highly negative way, sort of as almost as an equivalent to lying or hiding intentions or taking refuge to subterfuge or something like that, which isn't absolutely untrue because the Jesuits were often put in social and political context in which they had to, you know, had to find ways to survive political and social pressure. And uh, I think they often walk the fine line between staying true to their Christian and Catholic identity and then also hiding some of the most offensive aspects of their, their identity. If, if that is fine reasoning, then it may have grown out of a broader Jesuit academic culture. I think the case people people would would cite first of all is England in the early modern world in England, it was legally impossible to to survive as a Jesuit. Actually, if you were detected being a Jesuit, you you faced the, the death penalty. So there are scores of Jesuits who actually ended up on the stake in England just for being Jesuits. So uh, t- uh, tell us when that happened? That was started in what was mostly in the 17th century. So there are, I think, about 80 Jesuits or so who who actually died uh, in England, uh, we would maybe say as public prisoners, uh, as political prisoners today. And in that context, the Jesuits developed ways of talking about themselves that tried to avoid letting people know that they are Jesuits. Is that clear? Yeah. Um, So so exactly.
0: So they were using their intellectual ability to sort of uh you know maybe slightly disingenuously argue things and they were and they were under pressure in england at that time because that was the time when basically you know the monarchs were trying to protestantize if you like uh england yeah. and so what yeah. the jesuits were seen as the prime example of potentially secret catholic society would mm-hmm. that be right
1: yeah, that I think that is that is what comes out of this. That if you if you put a, a nasty reading on that Jesuit behavior, you could actually say, well, they are trying to be a fifth column. So this is this is uh, as I understand it, this is really how that myth of the the Jesuits as a fifth column really emerged. That the Jesuits, in some historical circumstances, actually had to hide themselves in their identity, but but they were they they weren't keen on doing that. They they would actually rather have have been allowed to be a Jesuit. And from from this, I think, the myth of the fifth column, uh, sort of hidden Jesuit
0: um, emerges, the wily Jesuit as the English language has it. The wily Jesuit. Let's talk about the missionary Jesuit. And perhaps the best illustration of this is China, where there's a lot of controversy about the Jesuit's attitude being quite liberal, if you want to use that word, as you've you've not encouraged. But uh, they were seen as... um, quite open to chinese cultural practices in a way that some other catholics weren't can you talk us through that when did that happen what went on
1: well, the Jesuits came to China. Well, let, let me put it the other way around: the Jesuits wanted to come to China almost from the very beginning. Um, so Francis Xavier, the famous first missionary, um, a close friend of Ignatius, uh, already wanted to enter China in the 1550s, but this didn't happen for various reasons. And the fact that the Jesuits only get into China at the turn of the from the 15th from the 16th to the 17th century, and it takes them. A, sort of, uh, you know, a huge effort to establish a very tiny presence in China. I think we need to be realistic here. The Jesuits made only a a, a sort of a a limited impact on Chinese history in the early modern period. They were by and large compared to, you know, to the huge numbers of of, um, people in China, there were only very few converts and only Very few of them were um, culturally or socially really important. Uh, The Jesuits got to China or what success they had in China happened, as you rightly said, through the fact that the Jesuits were very open and very curious about all indigenous cultures, I would say, around the globe. So the Chinese case is no exception here. The Jesuits learned the languages of the places and people they encountered. They also acquainted themselves with Chinese language and Chinese literature. They became... Producers of Chinese texts themselves. So they, they started to write and, and missionize in Chinese. They changed their lifestyle according to local customs. Again, in the case of China, they adopted um, native dress, native fashion concerning hair and um, dining uh, and, and, you know, everyday lifestyle. All of this is usually put together or brought together under the label of accommodation. So the Jesuits, as a, as a Catholic order, who were open and willing to accommodate to local culture. There were limits to accommodation, um, and the limits were there where Jesuits thought that local customs were immoral or offended Christian morals or Christian dogma. Now, wherever this boundary is, of course, is a question of debate and discussion. And this is precisely what happened most famously in China. Other Christians, the Dominicans, for instance, eventually also the papacy, thought that the Jesuits in China endorsed a couple of local practices that they should not have endorsed because these other Christians, the papacy, the Dominicans, considered them to be anti-Christian or to be sinful. One of the most famous examples is the Chinese, so-called Chinese, devotion to ancestors, uh, which the Jesuits understood as being only, you know, memorial services, uh, just, you know, a, a certain ritual at the grave of a forefather that the Chinese conducted in order to, you know, to to uphold memory. Whereas other Catholics, eventually also the papacy, thought this were religious rites, Confucian religious rites, and therefore could not be endorsed by Christians. The boundaries of what you could accommodate and what was in accommodatable, so to say. These boundaries uh, were always um, open for discussion. And sometimes the Jesuits were maybe a little more liberal, yes, than other Catholic
0: actors of the time. And did that lead to success in terms of their missionary work? Were they good at it?
1: The the balance has to be um, very different for different regions. I would say there were areas of the world in which Jesuit missionary activities um, were disastrous failures. Japan being an obvious um, case, they started off very well in China, but then in the early 17th century, the Jesuits and uh, in fact, Catholicism was... or Christianity was was forbidden in China there were many people executed for being Christian so there were huge disasters Ethiopia also didn't end well for the Jesuits and and Roman Christianity, but then there were other areas, um, Mexico, parts of Southern America, where the Jesuits and other missionary orders that worked alongside with them succeeded in in uh, bringing Christianity to
0: those regions um, in a a long-term efficient way. I see. So you say yes. I mean, the Jesuits and other Catholic organizations and maybe uh, other Christian organizations were successful in Latin America, but when you look at the Jesuits compared to other Catholic outfits, let's say, Catholic evangelical organizations, how did they compare in that way within the church? If we compare
1: them to other Catholic um, actors, I would say the Jesuits were by and large the most prominent, the most, and probably also the most successful propagators of Christianity. If we compare them to non-Catholic missionaries, uh, since you mentioned the evangelicals, I think the question becomes, um, becomes more complex because we're talking about different times. The the evangelical Protestant missionary activities only started in the late 18th century at a period when the Catholics and the Jesuits, in particular were facing a downward trend so for much of the 19th century I would say the evangelicals or the Protestants and the evangelicals uh, were at least as um, prominent and as successful as the Catholics and it took the Jesuits, in particular quite some time after being re-established in 1814 to get the missionary work up and running again. I would say the answer has to be different for different periods of Christian uh, missionary history. And in the the late 18th and much of the 19th century, I, I would say evangelical missionary activities were at least as successful and maybe even more successful than their Catholic counterparts.
0: And just pull this forward to today, if you can, for us. As, I, mean, I presume in the course of your research, you visited quite a few Jesuit institutions around the world. Where are they Biggest? Where, where where are they most established in in the world today? Um, this, this is an
1: interesting question because it it has to do with uh, Jesuit demographics in uh, maybe the last couple of decades. Obviously, um, the Jesuit presence in in Western Europe and Northern America is is dwindling. You know, there are less. Jesuits, uh, less and less Jesuits. Uh, whereas on the other hand, regions like India, for example, are expanding or at least holding their numbers. So I would say generally there is a shift away from a Europe or North Atlantic focused outlook of the Jesuits towards a more Southern outlook, uh, which, which has been really nicely reflected in the personalities of, the, of several of the last father generals of the Um, the Society of Jesus. With Father Sosa, we have the first uh, sort of true South American, non-European Father General um, in Rome, but several generals before him, while being European by birth and by initial training, have actually actually moved back to to Rome from non-European locations, most famously uh, from Japan. So there has been a de Europeanization of the Society of Jesus underway for quite a few decades
0: now. And is the organization still rich?
1: Yeah, I think it's still, um, there, there is still a lot of money. I think with Chesuit um, and riches, I think we also have to be very careful who we're talking about. The Society of Jesus as a global body hardly has a, a sort of communal budget. So rich are individual institutions or maybe individual provinces. So if you look at, for instance, uh, individual Chesed colleges or universities in the United States, they may be said to be rich, but that does not preclude that other Chesed institutions only down the road. Are actually very poor. So there is no overall communal budget for all of the Jesuits out of which individual things would be paid. The Jesuit economy really works on a sort of institution by institution and body by body organization.
0: Right. Okay. That's interesting because one of the tensions I think is that, you know, it's a global organization, really, in some ways. And yeah. yet one of the tensions is that it's, uh, yeah, and, and, and in, in that respect, it comes up against nationalist. Oh, yeah. Uh, feelings, uh, which are anti-Jesuit, right? Because so, so an, maybe is it an early example of anti-globalization? That sort of. Stuff. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that,
1: that, that's a very, uh, very interesting uh, question for this. For this um, well, I don't know if it's anti-globalization, but. But Jesuit history is is deeply connected with the rise of national identities almost from the beginning so from the beginning French Jesuits and Spanish Jesuits were fighting against each other about the, uh, you know the the dominant um, center of Catholicism about cultural outlook so on and so forth in in several moments of Jesuit history this tension between a global or universal outlook and national priorities really brought the, the Society of Jesus close to the the brink of of you know exploding. Also in in the late 20th century, when sort of um, the Jesuits were in a kind of a mini crisis under Father General Arupe, there were there were Jesuits conservative Jesuits in Spain who actually proposed that the Spanish branch of the Jesuits should split off the the entire Society of Jesus, you know, to be more more fully dedicated to to the Spanish um, world. So, yes, there is a tension between the global and the national, which is very strong in in the Jesuits. I think these days it's also often versus uh, relatively newly Catholicized regions and sort of, you know, traditional heartlands of Christianity, first and third world perspectives are not always easily aligned, uh, even within a, a, an order such as the Jesuits, who is so dedicated to, you know, to covering all aspects of Christianity. So yes, there is a lot of tension within the society of Jesus that at times makes it probably very difficult for them to live up to their universal or global perspective.
0: Now then, uh, I've read the reviews of your book, which I have to say are uh, overwhelmingly positive. There are a couple of points in there, which I think I should just ask you about. People saying there are omissions or sort of not enough emphasis on. And one is the Jesuits' history with slaveholding. Can you talk us through that?
1: Uh, well, the, 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 the facts are the Jesuits owned considerable amounts of slaves themselves uh, well into the 19th century in North America. True is also that the Jesuits um, had a very sort of uh, lukewarm attitude towards slavery, clearly not opposing it outright. The Jesuits also did a lot of missionary work among enslaved peoples, but that work among um, slaves never led them to question the institution in any explicit ways. So these are the facts. And I I did what I could to um, address that in my book. This is really one of the interesting things where I found uh, a difference between the European or German uh, reception of the book and the American um, or or US or English um, reception of the book. Because many people in Germany or uh, in Europe uh, had hardly ever heard and maybe weren't really concerned with that slavery issue. So they found it revealing that somebody could actually write almost 15 pages about that. Uh, Whereas some reviewers, as you mentioned, in the United States, for whom issues of slavery are maybe even more more part of a daily concern than in Europe, uh, found this not to be enough. So I would say um, writing the book initially from a a German perspective, I, I did more than than what, what was usual in 2016. But I do appreciate that from, from periods, from from societies in which um, the consequences of slavery are even more prevalent than in, in Germany, uh, this may have only
0: sparked interest for more. Right. And what about the, a second issue, uh, priest abuse? You know, the, the whole scandals uh, surrounding the Catholic Church of the sexual abuse of, uh, of children. And, yeah, the Jesuits were part of that, Right.
1: Yeah, the Jesuits were part of that. And this is, of course, a very sad story on all fronts. Maybe I should have written more on that, especially um, as it uh, concerns the most recent developments. This is maybe one of the one of the things I should have focused more about it Uh, again on, on the other side, I would say I actually did wrote a a couple of paragraphs about sexuality and child abuse uh, as it relates to the early Jesuit um, history. So pre 1773. And again, I um, by the time I was writing that I considered myself to be pretty innovative of including the topic at all. So I do appreciate the reviewers wish for more information and maybe five years down the line after uh, first uh, conceiving the book, I I I would actually give it more attention nowadays. But then on the other side, I think I addressed it in in ways that
0: not many people have done it before. Uh, It's it's quite a long book. How how many pages is is, um, your book?
1: I think in the English translation, it runs to slightly more than
0: 800. Yeah, it's a lot. And, and, and I have to say, most yeah there is an emphasis on the early history of the yeah. church. That, I mean, that's the bulk of your work. But yeah. can I just ask you, as we, we come to a close of this, to look ahead to the future of the Jesuits now we've understood their history? How do you see that future? It sounds like you see it mainly in the developing world. Inevitably, the
1: developing world, if we may use this concept, uh, will play an ever greater role in Christianity at large. So also in the Jesuits. I personally think that the Jesuits may be ahead of the church in general in uh, accepting that and, and uh, you know endorsing that. I also think that the Jesuits are... Facing many of the difficulties that all Christian outfits um, will face in the, the the coming, I don't know, decades or or generations, uh, but I do think that the Jesuits are maybe slightly better equipped uh, to address some of these changes because they are generally more open in engaging with cultural, social uh, shifts and trends, I would say, which maybe brings us back to your opening question about the Jesuits, sort of uh, the the, the basic imperative of the Jesuits. One of the, the most interesting things of the Society of Jesus, as I see it, is that this fundamental goal of helping the souls does not specify how and in which ways this is to be done, which allows the Jesuits, maybe more than other Catholic bodies, to be ever adjusting, to be open to new trends. Um, You know, if you find a new field in which to help souls, the Jesuits, I think, are fairly easily able to endorse that, which I hope, will give them maybe a slightly better chance of weathering future storms than other outfits.
0: And one uh, final question about what must have been a huge amount of work you, you put into this. Uh, when you were sifting through all those documents over presumably many years, which was the one moment that surprised you most when you went, oh, Really? I didn't expect that. What, what 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 was that moment? One of the things that that really got me looking twice,
1: or maybe actually even thrice, was when I learned that the Jesuits were building fortifications, uh, which is only a small detail now in my book of maybe half a page or so. But that really was the moment, as 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 I look back, that that made me realize that there is really no field of early modern and presumably also contemporary culture that was not touched upon by the jesuits which um then brought me to that that overall conclusion that i mentioned earlier already that the jesuits are such heterogeneous body that it's really impossible to to pin them down to you know to any one thing it's not even possible to say the one thing that the jesuits didn't do so so this uh, this i remember like a like one of these really moments. They also built forts. And then it, it, you know, this just turned out to be a, a key, a
0: keystone in my overall puzzle, highlighting that we, we shouldn't limit the Jesuits to anything. Professor Friedrich, thanks so much for telling us all about the, the Jesuits.
1: Well, thank you, Owen, so much for your interest in my book and my work and for hosting me here.